for August 20th, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 529. Speaking on behalf of all Asians... Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We may not be crazy rich, but we're crazy rich with ideas. We're crazy. Uh, we're in the uh, the upper socioeconomic classes of uh, brainiacitude, I guess, except not socioeconomic and more uh, more like hot air uh, up at our level. We're talking about Crazy Rich Asians, the film that opened in the United States this week to the tune of uh, twenty five million and change. Um, in over the weekend, and I think 34 million for the full five day opening because it opened on Wednesday. And, uh, we are excited to, to dig into this movie, uh, for a lot of reasons. One is because, uh, it represents something different at the box office. The what is different and what is the same, I think is going to be something that we, uh, piece out in some detail. And who are we, you ask, why we are the overthinkers? I am your good friend from the internet, Matt Rather, and I am here with your other good friend from the internet, Peter Fenzel. Hey, Matt. And your other, other good friend from the internet, Mark Lee. Hello, Matthew. Spoiler We're alert. Excited. Yeah, spoiler alert for Crazy Rich Asians. And I guess, I don't know, do, do you, uh, we actually have been, have been advised by fellow overthinkers who sometimes listen to the podcast and sometimes don't that we should, uh, declare whether the spoiler alert matters or not. I would say it doesn't. Spoiler alert. It's a rom-com. Right. Uh, that's, the, that's the, the spoiler alert that, that I would put and tells you everything you need to know pretty much plot wise about that. Uh, do you guys agree or disagree that, that, uh, that is the only spoiler alert warning that you need? Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, this is this is a podcast you can listen to if you haven't seen this movie because you probably want to participate in the discourse around this movie, of which there's going to be a lot. All right. Yeah. It's probably somewhat more surprising than Skyscraper was or than the Meg might have been, but it's still within the realm of if, uh, you can listen to us. Listen to this, even if you don't have to watch. If you haven't watched the movie, it's going to be fine. It's uh, not going to impair your enjoyment. Of it. All right. Three for three. Spoiler alert. But it doesn't matter. Let's dive in then to Crazy Rich Asians. One of the big themes of the film um, is the uh, Asian diaspora and the the um the the separation and the kind of cultural difference between Asians who still live on the continent of Asia and people who emigrated from there and live in other places like for example New York City in, in the United States. Uh Mark speaking as an Asian who lives in New York City in the United <laughs> States. Um there there's a lot of talk about sort of cultural authenticity uh in this film and and very specific references and things not all of which to the film's Great credit, I think, are explained for the the mass American audience, right? But yeah. um, this is one aspect of cultural specificity that I think you are uniquely qualified to comment on. Do you feel like the movie gets this right? And to the extent that you feel comfortable talking about it, how does your experience sort of jibe or not jibe with what goes on uh, on screen? Uh, speaking on behalf of all Asians, right? And, which, well, of uh, course, you're entitled to that. do. All Asian Americans, and as a subset of that, all Asian Americans who live in New York City, I can say 100% yes. Uh, no, in, in all seriousness, and I am very much going to connect this to my own personal experience, um, I found this movie to be extraordinarily resonant with the um, ex- specific experience of uh, East Asians, uh, people of East Asian background, like Japanese, Korean, and Chinese, of which I'm most familiar with, um, living uh, from the Asian diaspora who grew up in the United States and have the experience of going back to uh, countries where that culture is dominant. I'm not going to exactly say motherland because that has a whole other set of things, and it's a whole complicated by the fact that uh, you know in this movie um, and in real life, uh, you have you know Chinese people who have their own sort of diaspora into Singapore, but still represent the dominant culture there. Um, anyway, so you know, a- of Asian Americans going back to that uh, culture where their people, people who look like them, who um, you know share ostensibly the same ethnic background, um, that whole experience 
100% nailed it. So I'm just going to like give the, the, histor- the my personal experience of this and then uh, open it back up to you guys and, and, and see uh, what questions you might have about this. You know, as my uh, white American interlocutors and former colonizers, <laughs> I will let you speak after I have this moment uh, to talk about me and Asians and stuff like that. Um, so I grew up as uh, longtime listeners of this podcast will know uh, in the in the United States of America, I was born in the South, uh, but grew up in, in New York City, went to college in the Northeast, so on and so forth. And um, I had the experience uh, after I graduated from college to go back to Korea um, to what was supposed to be a year-long language study thing, but wound up spending three months there and had the intense up and down experience of first going and uh, having this intense feeling of kinship and like, oh, this is this in a way is a home. This is where I belong, where this is people look like me. I'm no longer this kind of weird outsider, especially something that was just really something that I felt growing up in the South as, you know, the only Asian kid in like a 99 percent white high school. That, that feeling gone and, you know, not the sense that I, I, I stick out in a sore thumb. Except when I open my mouth, except when I actually engage with people on a human being to human being level. And then the fact that I look like everyone, the fact that I come from the same background, uh, the same sort of you know genetic stock as everybody else, only then uh, it makes it that much more difficult for me to fit in. Then uh, it sets me apart so much. And I go from basically in the flash of an eye from just another person in the crowd to like this freak of nature. Like, what are you? And then it's like, what is wrong with you? Um, and so you know, the the lead character in Crazy Rich Asians, who is a you know, American ABC, American born Chinese, who grew up all her life in the United States and then uh, goes to Singapore um, and, you know, thinks that she can fit in with all of these uh Chinese people in, in Singapore and then is kind of like, you know, just rejected for all sorts of reasons, class being kind of one of them, but really more, much more so cultural. Um, I really, really identified with that. Um, granted, I have selection bias in terms of people that I've met and I'm friends with uh, in growing up in the United States. And, and I've had a similar experience going back to Asia. But I can say that, like, you know, plenty of other people that I know have had that experience. So this is all like really, really real. Um, maybe less stuffed tigers. <laughs> and um uh you know uh, first class flights uh to uh to 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 asia itself but uh a, a lot of it rang really really true without the crazier rich parts just the straight up asian stuff is is all really accurate so pete matt like uh you know did any of that ring through as you saw this in the movie um can you uh you know play a little sad little violin for poor mark lee who who can't quite fit in in the united states or in asia oh mark don't don't belittle that experience i think i mean i think it's huge and i know you think it's huge too because we've talked about it oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm not trying to i'm not trying to belittle it i i will call it highly disorienting if you will yeah and the idea i mean an idea ideas of belonging and ideas of you know kinship are kind of at the heart of a certain kind of romantic comedy because it's about a new family unit forming, right? It's about mm-hmm. kind of new bonds forming. And so who is in, who is out, who, especially when there are rivalries or things, things like this, that, the, that, you know, aspects, relational aspects like that. It's a huge, uh, part of the, the genre. And it's a huge, it's a huge part of the experience that, that you're describing as well. I mean, I'd say that, I, I'd say that the, Kind of at the end, the the axis of of Asianness and and Asian American to Asian living in Asia, um, and the uh, the axis of crazy richness are are conflated somewhat, and they actually should be orthogonal to one another. Right? We we actually don't meet uh, an Asian in singapore in this film who is not some definition of crazy rich even aquafina's family um would be i mean i suppose they are they are merely outrageously rich and not incomprehensibly rich uh like the youngs but the um you know that that there's actually there's a (laughs) there's a crazy unrich asian asian quadrant on that uh on that two by two on that two-dimensional um set of axes as as well you know and that where whereas the film is 
remarkably attuned to the tiny details on the the sort of ethnic continuum. It's perhaps a little less attuned to the uh, details on the class-based continuum, except insofar as they provide fodder for a fish-out-of-water story and uh, a kind of power fantasy, right? Which is also part of the, the rom-com, because to a certain extent, it's about being taken care of as the, you know, traditionally as the woman, it's about kind of being swept up and taken care of by, by someone else. I don't know. Pete reactions to what Mark said. So Mark was the food particularly powerful for you. See, see Matt, I'm going to like not go off on my own tangent, but I'm going to toss it back to Mark so he can talk about it more. So, so Mark, wow. You're really going to, you're really going to virtue signal. Wow, God, you're so was woke. Was it the architecture? What, what were the sort of superficial aspects of the movie that made you sort of like zing the most, the way that people behaved? What were the, what really connected with you? Um, there were a lot of things. Um, I'm, I'm trying to, okay, you, you mentioned the food, so let's talk about food for just a second, and we'll circle back to some other stuff. Um, superficially, um, the experience of going to a Singaporean hawker market to get extremely cheap but extraordinarily delicious uh, local Singapore, Chinese, Malaysian, Indian fusion cuisine, hundred uh, percent spot on. It's what you do when you're in Singapore. Um, I've been to Singapore for three days, so that makes me an expert in Sing- expert on Singapore. So um, <laughs> that is that is my uh, expert opinion on, on on the Singapore food aspect of it. Um, the Chinese food aspect of it. Now, I should also add another part of my um, personal background, personal uh, uh, approach coming to the story is that my wife is of Chinese descent. So both of us are, you know, kind of second generation Asian Americans of East Asian descent. So we have that thing in common. Um, and then uh, I have, you know, through her and through spending time with her family, have come to participate in rituals such as the dumpling making thing, right? Like, that's what that's it's a real thing that Asian people do. We sit yeah. down and like we meticulously make dumplings. And, you know, it's it's uh, it's mostly an excuse to like, you know, sit down and, and talk to each other and the hands have something to do while you, um, you know, get to know each other and uh, suss out social relationships. Um, the, and uh, I think the Michelle Yeoh character, Eleanor, right, you know, speaks explicitly, makes the implicit or the, the subtext uh, uh, text and saying, like, you know, this is not just about food. This is about um, passing down our cultural heritages, our cultural heritage, um, in addition to the, the sort of the social uh, grooming aspect of it. Um, so, yeah, that's a real thing, right? Um, it's and seeing that depicted on screen. This is the whole like representation uh, argument that or, or discourse that we're having around here, right? Seeing that that thing that is very particular to you uh, and and representative of you, but you know has just has never been on screen before in such a high profile way, is a very powerful and empowering. Thing so yeah, I was just very you know kind of happy to see that um, to see people making dumplings on screen because also also dumplings are delicious. Everyone can relate to dumplings. That's true. I've I've actually been had the pleasure of joining a dumpling party at one point. It was a really good time. Uh, yeah, and Mar- Matt, have you ever had the chance to do that? Do they do them in the West Coast? Do they have kind of fusion dumpling parties with kind of uh, exotic new ingredients that the rest of the world haven't experienced yet from California's rich agricultural bounty? Wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is, is chock full of very specific Chinese and Chinese-American cultural references. I got some of them. I didn't get a lot of them. But the really, really big thing that this movie talks about and sort of the cleavage and the difference and the thing that resonated the most with me and I think with most Asian-Americans as they approach this movie is this idea that Asian cultures are more collective-focused, are more family-focused, and then uh, American and, by extension, Asian-American culture is more individualistic, um, more uh, the the dark side of that being selfish, I suppose, um, and that uh, this creates a, a huge compatibility problem um, that the two leads in the romantic comedy must uh, o- overcome. And there is actually some empirical evidence of this. You know, do like those psychology studies and like uh, behavioral economics types of things where they see how people behave and how they. Um, uh, describe themselves in relationship to other people and society. Uh, they do this sort of, you know, they do the same exercise or they ask the same questions in Western culture versus Eastern culture. And lo and behold, right, the, the, the results come out and they are aligned with the, um, the, the broad uh, generalizations that I just made about those cultures. So that's there. And, and it, uh, it, it, again, going back to my own, my own personal 
um, story growing up, like, you know, as an Asian American with first generation immigrant parents and then, you know, second generation uh, who grows up in the United States, like you feel that tension every day, every day. There's this sense that, like, you know, you should go with the flow. You should be part of uh, this continuum of culture that that belongs to our ancestors and our people, um, but then as a, as a second generation person, you can't. It's so inaccessible. That's this abstract thing that belongs to your parents, who who speak English with a funny accent um, and doesn't belong to you on your everyday experience going to school and coming home uh, after school and watching Ducktales and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on television, and then you know being told that you are special, um, you have individualism, America is the land of freedom, and uh, and you know individual rights, and do whatever you want, and screw everyone else. Um, it, it is a huge, huge uh, gulf to bridge, and the fact that it nearly drives this couple apart um, is, again, I think a very authentic um, uh, experience to show on TV, uh, or sorry, on, on, on the big screen. So I was a big, yeah, this is like, it was just... It, it, it felt so good to see that again uh, represented on the screen for a mass audience. So in, in, I mean, and the, the thing that the Michelle Yeoh character says is following your passion, right? That's her code word for that bad American uh-huh. behavior where you put yourself ahead of uh, your family, I guess. Um, and, but it's hard to see where the, where Rachel, the, the Constance Wu character, where she has sort of sinned in that regard, right? Because she's, right. Cl- yeah. she's sort of clearly achieved a great deal and is, you know, is uh, is a sort of chosen one, right? The youngest faculty member ever at NYU or something like that. Uh, that that's, uh, right, so what, it's more, it's kind of a straw man, right? The 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 objection in point of fact in, in this movie, though, though I guess it's because she hasn't, like, become a mother and, like, given up her career in the way that the Michelle Yeoh character did uh, or something like that, hasn't put family first yeah, it's because she won't readily subordinate herself to the wills of the young family, which is to get Nick Young, the male lead, to uh, to, to take up the family business. And you know, they just know that, like you know, because she is an established professional in the United States, she's not going to just uh, walk away from that. That's their assumption. It's, I don't think it's necessarily like explicitly said in that, but um, you can make that logical leap pretty easily. Yeah, it's the it's a. It's an interesting, sort of interesting dynamic in the movie in that at the, at the end when she chooses to, chooses to say no to, to not, um, accept the proposal, right? That, uh, that she's sort of acquiescing to this. Uh, she's acquiescing to this collectivist demand, but that, that doesn't seem right to me either, right? That, cause she's, uh, she's sort of making, I guess she's making the decision more for him than for her, but not on behalf of the family, right? On behalf of, of his happiness. So there's still a kind of, um, there's still a kind of individualism involved. I mean, she's, she's, uh, um, yeah, it's a uh, more of a rom com thing, right? At at that point, though, it's mapped onto this individualist, collectivist uh, opposition, the way you describe. Yeah, it is. Um, but there's, uh, it, it's tough, and this gets into all sorts of other different, um, you know, uh, axes of of gender and power dynamics as well. And I don't know if we're gonna go on this tangent or, or talk about the class stuff, right? But, um, you know, it, the the movie goes well out of its way to empower, try to empower Rachel. Um, to make this her decision and not just about, you know, I'm doing this so that the guy will be happy. It's also like, especially with the Mahjong at the, at the end, um, where she, you know, makes a power play essentially and says that like, you know, I could do this. Like I have all this agency and ability and skill. Um, and, um, I'm not really letting you, Eleanor, the, the quote unquote evil stepmom, um, get one over on me and just, you know, totally plow through me. Like, you know, I'm, I'm making this decision because, uh, because ultimately, because I, I, I want to do this and, and it's going to make me happy in addition to, uh, in, in addition to Nick. Um, Pete, you did a little bit of research on the Mahjong. And so now you are a resident Mahjong expert. Can you explain that a little bit? <laughs> so sure. So, and I think there's a couple of things in the Mahjong game, the specific Mahjong game in Crazy Rich Asians that speak to what you guys are both talking about. Uh, there's and there's a great article on Vox you can go check out just to sort of source it that's been going around. Um, so in the game, right, of course, it's a 
it's a game like Gin Rummy where you trade tiles. If you're familiar with Mahjong at all, it's, you know, it's you draw and discard, right? And you're trying to make match sets and there's other sorts of ways to win and there's various sorts of wagers. Uh, but the actions they take in the game reflect some things that are happening in the story. So in Mahjong, the four seats of the table correspond to the four cardinal directions of the compass. Uh, notable at the table in the Crazy Rich Asians game of Mahjong are two people from a Chinese minority, a Chinese ethnic minority in Singapore, who are literally rendered silent, um, as is much of the rest of the population of Singapore that is not hot Chinese in this movie. Uh, but but let's let's table that for a second, and we'll, we can talk about that later if we even want to. But the point being that Rachel puts herself in the west seat, and she puts Eleanor in the east seat, which makes her the dealer. Of course, Rachel representing the west, Eleanor representing the east. Eleanor reveals early on the conversation that she is uh, her strategy is to make match sets. She she reveals a match set of tiles that she's put together uh, to indicate, OK, this is sort of what I'm doing. And they talk about how in Mahjong, knowing like in Jin Rummy, right, it's not that strange if you play Jin Rummy, knowing what the other person is doing and kind of feeding them in the direction of a strategy they might be pursuing is a strategy that you might take yourself in order to kind of create space for you to pursue your own strategy. And there's various sorts of negotiation that takes place. And um, so so. Uh, Eleanor is going for match sets, which makes sense because she's all about in-grouping, right? There's people that belong and there's people that don't belong. And and the counterpoint, I think, Mark, one potential counterpoint to what you're talking about with regards to the dislocation of the Asian-American identity vis-a-vis being in Asia is like the active unwelcomeness that is projected towards Asian-Americans from Asians in Asia, at least as expressed in this movie, uh, in the sense it's like it's not like it's not like it's all on you, right, for not feeling welcome, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and Eleanor's mother, or Eleanor, Eleanor, sorry, uh, Nick's mother, starts discarding bamboo tiles. And one point that this article makes is that discarded bamboo is like a, a sort of a slur, <laughs> sort of an insult that's used for uh, Chinese diaspora that's gone, you know, to America or somewhere and have have lost their roots, right? And so she's kind of throwing shade at. Rachel during the game, consciously or subconsciously. And Rachel is picking up the bamboo, right? Because Rachel kind of is, is she is the discarded bamboo, right? She is the, uh, and bamboo is a term that's very much associated with Chinese diaspora in a variety of like symbolic ways. Um, and uh, she then reveals to us and not to Eleanor at first that she's drawn the eight of bamboo, uh, and as such, this is the tile that she needs to win. Uh, and it is the tile also that Eleanor needs to win. And it's notable, of course, because eight in, you know, East Asian cultures and is uh, numerologically and super superstitially uh, super important. It has to do with wealth and prosperity. Uh, you know, you want license plates with eights on them. You want area codes with eights on them. You know, you want uh, all sorts of numbers with eights on it if you can get them. Obviously, this isn't everybody, but this is like a legit thing like sevens might be in the West. Um, and, uh, and she chooses to discard the aid of bamboo so that Eleanor can draw it. And then Eleanor reveals what she has done, right? She's, she's, she's won the game. And then Rachel reveals what she has done, which is that she would have won the game and she voluntarily threw the game to Eleanor. And that's not entirely clear if you don't know Mahjong, but it's pretty cool, uh, that, it, that subtext exists and that the game is actually kind of following as somebody who knows even the basic rules of chess. This almost never happens in chess games and movies where it's like, haha, I see you've come to my castle. I'll illegally move my knight to the seventh rank. Right? Like, ah, well, you know, this is both a flirtatious and dangerous encounter. I will switch my rooks places for no reason. Right. Like, no, this is a game of Mahjong that's choreographed by like an expert in Mahjong and knows exactly what Mahjong is symbolically. Yeah. And such. Yeah. Which which really will like completely go over the heads of uh, a basically most of the non-Chinese audience, right? And it's really, yeah, sure. it's it's like, it's uh, again, like going back to the representation piece, right? This is for a certain amount of people and they will get this and they will love this. Everyone else, uh, it, it they might miss out on it, but they still get the overall gist of what's going on. This is um, a movie the, that's very good at making certain people feel like the movie is just for them while at the same time being very broadly for everybody. Because it's not like the idea of your mom not liking your girlfriend is like an exclusively Asian experience. <laughs> right? like it's, it's not like it's not like Asians are the only people where their family was more collectivist before they moved to America and then they moved to America and all of a sudden it's less strict and it's like, oh, why aren't you living with your mom? Why aren't you doing your mom things? Yep. Right. It's not like they're not the only yeah, people experiencing it. It, it just it. so happens that like a lot a lot of it is exacerbated or just more 
um, thrown into higher relief for Asian Americans because so many uh, Asians um, did that immigration during the 60s, you know, after the yeah. uh, American immigration law changed. And then uh, meanwhile, um, Asia itself underwent rapid modernization um, while uh, Asian Americans, you know, went quickly from like generation one being like a lower or middle class thing and generation two being a middle class or upper class uh, sort of thing. Um, yeah. But going back to the Majdan for a second, like, yeah. uh, you know, it has all those functions that we just described, but uh, it also provides a nice uh, bookend uh, uh, to the intro scene of the movie, which where it shows Rachel in her economics class playing poker. And talking about game theory, right? So it does a couple of things here. One is that it further reinforces Rachel as being a smart person who knows how to do stuff and is canny in power negotiations. And then it also like you know, provides that nice kind of east-west balance um, uh, to to the movie and then all the ideas that it represents. Um, so yeah, she's an economics professor, right? So uh, <clears throat> cracks knuckles. Time for some game theory. Well, what? Uh, yeah, I mean, what? What is the point of that of that game theory thing? It's. It, I I think that the moral that's identified at the beginning of the film is not necessarily the moral um, of uh, that is played out in the mahjong scene, right? Like that. That the the moral at the beginning of the film is that you're you're playing the you're playing the player. You're not necessarily playing the odds, right? And she was able to best her her TA, which she is not particularly gracious about. But uh, you know that that you know uh, underpaid casual academic laborer who she humiliates in front of uh, a bunch of uh, you know much wealthier private school students. So you know, wait, way to go, uh, Rachel. The the um, the lesson is that, like, I know this guy is cheap, right? I know this poor, this poor wage slave is, is unlikely to risk large sums of money. So I can, I can manipulate him on that basis or I can predict his, his, his moves on that basis. This seems a little closer to like behavioral psychology or behavioral economics to a more like pure game theory, a more kind of uh, where you imagine that you are homo economicus playing against homo economicus right or you you imagine that people are going to align entirely with their payoff structure though though it is true that at the end uh you know when she's when she's playing uh against her future mother-in-law right the mother-in-law is playing not to lose um but she's at that point playing not to win, to be able to win, to demonstrate ability to win, uh, but but not to win at the same time. I don't know. Is there is there an a sub branch? Because I'm I'm beyond the most cursory acquaintance. I don't have a ton of of insight into game theory. Is there a sub branch of it that deals with the sort of behavioral psychology insights about cognitive biases and irrational behavior in the same way that that psychology and economics have have tried to cope with that? Uh, I mean, having studied a bit of game theory, I would suggest I think you're absolutely right in your statement that the stated moral at the beginning of the movie has very little to do with the games that are actually played in the movie, I think. Uh, and, I, and I don't think it has much, like the idea of like, play to win, don't play to lose, play not to lose, right? That's a fine moral, but it's not what's happening in the Mahjong game. And I, what I would suggest from a from a poker perspective, and, and it's it just seems to me that it's unlikely if it's just an example of bluffing. That's not there's not really much to learn from that, except other than just sort of a very sort of a rudimentary demonstration that you would do because it's the beginning of the semester. And you want to convince your students that you're a cool teacher. Uh, but it's like uh, if I think about poker, what would really be represented in the example that I can think of? Because because the basic event, right, is that like she bets a lot of money with bad cards and he has good cards and he folds. Right. And that's sort of what we see. I, I think, right, in terms yeah. of that hand. Uh, and I haven't seen a breakdown of it because uh, I didn't, like, bring my pad and paper to sketch it down. But from a poker perspective, what they might be talking about is uh, something called ranges, right, where you – and, Matt, you probably know a little bit about this. I, right? I actually don't know. I know zero about poker. But he's got a pair of nines and a pair of queens, I think, or a pair of yeah. kings even. Like, he's – you know, so he's and, – and it's uh, – 
it's stud poker, right? So there, yeah, or maybe not stud weird. poker, why, or like there, it's not, plays, yeah, yeah, it's not Texas Hold'em, which is the one variety of poker that everyone that everyone knows these days. But but the and it's actually, I'm sorry, it's not stud poker because that involves face up cards as well in your hand, right? So it's he's got fi- it's draw poker, and so he's got he's got the winning hand, um, like and and it's pretty clear to to pair pair of nines pair of kings. That's that's a pretty strong hand, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what I'm thinking it is the case is that um, there's been sort of an evolution from the World Series of Poker heyday in the early aughts when it became like a big spectator sport when they invented the pencil cam and kind of how poker is played on a high level now in general uh, and a high level of the sort that you would want to play if you wanted to sort of spend money on it. And one of the big things that's changed is that people have gone from – uh, focusing on individual hands. Is my hand better than this person's hand? To analyzing the behavior of betting. And this is not behavioral in the sense of, uh, you know, behavioral psychology, but it is a behavior. You know, how is the person betting at various points in the game? And using that information, can I create a sort of combinatorial table in my head of the possible hands that they might have, the things that they might have uh, that, that are going on? Not just like, I think they have this car hand, I think that they have this hand, but rather thinking sort of probabilistically about the probability of the hands that they might have within a given range uh, that that would might cause them to make such a such and such a behavior. And in this kind of poker situation, if you were able to bet in such a way as to convince your opponent that your range was a range that was probabilistically favored over their range, they might very well be right to fold to you. And and in fact, I would even venture to say that the biggest thing that's wrong with the example of poker in the beginning is that if the professor has really created a situation where in terms of game theory, she has the worst cards, but she's inducing the other player to fold, he is not necessarily making the wrong move. Right. Because the only information that he has is the information about her betting. And you're not supposed to make soul reads playing this game. Right. So it's like if she if she if she plays like a little bit loose and has and her like throws her range way off in order to catch him one time, uh, he'll get her in the next time. Right. She's not always going to like he's not always going to fold two pairs. Sometimes he'll have a hand that's really good. So, like, it's tough. The whole humiliation of him doesn't really make sense. But what I would say is that the end game of of uh, Crazy Rich Asians is based on Rachel formulating a range of possible outcomes, right? And and determining, and it's interesting because she's determining both a simultaneous game in which she and Eleanor are determining, uh, you know, that sort of there's like a little matrix being like, you know, well, Nick likes me and he likes his mom. Licks likes me more than his mom. Looks like Nick likes his mom more than me. You know, Nick likes neither of us. Right. And like maps out those uh, those payoffs and plays that kind of simultaneous game with the understanding that, OK, um, I actually don't win. It's actually better for me to break up with Nick than to stay with him and have him resent his family the entire time that he's with me. It's actually a lower payoff. So even though it superficially seems like I win because I get what his mom wants, it's actually not better for me. And so I should just break up with him because it's a dominant strategy. I either break up with him and he hates his mom or I break up with him and he likes his mom and they're both fine for me. Right. And because I care about Nick, I want the outcome that's better for Nick. So this is the way I'm going to do it. But then it's also a sequential game. Right. She she creates a simultaneous game. She reveals the simultaneous game and she iterates it by giving the mom another chance to respond and play the game again. And uh, and this is kind of how you get out of prisoner's dilemmas in game theory. The idea that like you can you get stuck in the prisoner's dilemma one time because it's always your dominant strategy to rat out the other person for your own benefit. And so uh, you would each rat each other out all the time, which means that if you didn't rat each other out, then you'd both be better off. But because it's always better for you to rat the other person out, not knowing whether they're going to rat you out, right? Uh, mathematically, you end up both writing each other out. And the way to break out of this is to iterate the game and play it more than once. And so that's what happens at the end of Crazy Rich Asians. Now, to what degree does this have to do with behavior and psychological behavior? It's tricky, well, right? right? Is that because chicken is not an iterated game, right? Like the right. the <laughs> because it's caught, and that was going to be my follow up. Is this game actually a game of chicken? Um, and I feel like there are social ways in which it is, uh, but but the the ultimate decision and also the mahjong game is is not. Well, there there are multiple games of chicken throughout this movie, and that there are like multiple acts of aggression and um, trying to 
uh, position yourself from a showing of strength, right? There's the beginning poker move at the beginning where Rachel uh, puts her chips all in when in fact she's bluffing. So that's her, you know, um, doing that show of strength. Um, there are probably there are, there are probably a bunch of them scattered out throughout the movie, but in particular highlights are when she's on the Bachelorette weekend and the other mean girls put the dead fish. <laughs> In her bed, which is really gruesome for this movie, by the way. Um, so there was that power move. Um, and then, of course, um, uh, Eleanor and then the grandma um, revealing that they had the private investigator to get the dirt about uh, Rachel's family history. Uh, that being a power move. And then ultimately the sort of tit for tat you see at the end with regards to the Mahjong. Um, uh, oh, uh, oh, sorry. Let me back up. And then also there's the explicit conversation that Rachel and uh, uh, Aquafina's character have about the fact that this is all a game of chicken, that Eleanor is going hard um, and trying to say that, you know, she is will not relent in this. Um, and so Rachel needs to respond in kind, essentially, and, and, and make her show of strength. Is that game theory? Uh, perhaps not. It's, it's like this uh, strategic psychological dueling, which is going on, which is going on. Um, so I at least found it satisfying from that perspective. And maybe the game theory stuff is all just kind of window dressing to to tie in more uh, with her ec- economics background. But I, I, I liked it all the same. Yeah. The, the term here would be brinksmanship, right? Is that you're willing yes, yes. you're willing to bring the other person to the brink of disaster because it will coerce them to change their strategy. And in terms of studying negotiation, one thing that you learn uh, is that you can only really coerce people if their relationship with you does not matter to you. And and in this case, it kind of you would you would expect it to you would expect people to want to be nice to each other. Uh, one 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 thing one reason and and this goes back to what Matt was saying at the beginning. Right. It's not it's not collectivism if there's no cooperation. Well, that's here's there's the thing. Or it's authoritarian. I, I was here's the thing. Here's the thing is, is you're right, is that um, it's not just about collectivism. It's about subordination. Right. Is what you're saying. So like that's that's the part of it that the uh, the American mindset, I think, has a hard time with is the idea that, like, in order to be collective and family oriented, you need to subordinate your decision making authority under another person who may or may not be trustworthy in handling it uh, because of their station. Mm-hmm. Right. Because yeah, this person. Is, yeah, exactly. And so, like, I don't know about you guys, but like, I, I certainly can go back in my family history and think of times when, like, uh, you know, I might have preferred a, uh, you know, even even through generations. It might have been great if there were a particular person at a particular time who could have made the right decision. But that person maybe didn't make the right decision. And and I get, I get one thing you can relate this to in a big way is like uh, is like this, the sort of um, the divorces, the sort of history of divorce. Right. In the United States, where when divorce was first made legal, there was like a ton of divorce. Right. Uh, because there were a lot of people who had wanted to get divorced but couldn't. And this is this is related to the idea that society is invested in the subordinate in, invested in what they call like a partnership. Right. What they refer to as as a family unit that needs to be preserved. But it's being preserved through a subordination. And the sort of American way of thinking about it is like, well, if we uh, if we allow this to be a voluntary arrangement rather than just a subordination where they meet as equals, look how quickly it falls apart. Right. But then you see over time that actually the divorce rate kind of pulls back and it turns out that, yeah, the divorce rate is high, but it's mostly related to money. Right. And it's like people lose their jobs and families fall apart. And like but this is a lot of it has to do with economics. And, and it's not necessarily that, that marriages aren't things that people want. Right. Um, it's that there was this big buildup at the beginning. And there's this weird confrontation that happens when you have the option to not subordinate yourself. And it's like maybe you go you maybe you go too far in the other direction. Right. Like it's like I don't I don't have to be part of the group anymore in that I don't have to subordinate my will under this one person. Then there can be like a backlash. I, I kind of feel like this whole thing is in like waves and we're all just all the different generations of different immigrant communities are all in different places in the waves. Right. And it's like, you know, you if you 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 were here, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, this is all this this thing drops on your family at some point and it kind of ripples out. And of course, it's going to be different in your experience. Right. Uh, you know, depending upon what your family's culture is and all that stuff. But but it's like I think part of why Crazy Rich Asians works for everybody is that if you if you personally don't identify with the story, you can like think about stories from your grandparents and it'll probably matter to those. Right. Like your parents, your grandparents probably went through something similar at some point. Great grandparents. Right. Something along those lines. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Mark, Mark uh, can I ask you a question about your visit to Singapore? Sure. 
Uh, did you see any Muslims in Singapore or any Malays? Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because we kind of intentionally went out to, to the different neighborhoods to seek out, you know, to see the different uh, uh, ethnic groups there, because that's totally a an authentic Singaporean thing to do is to experience its rich cultural diversity and not just see Chinese people all the time, yeah. rich, and crazy or richer and or richer otherwise. Yeah. And I think that that's one way the movie kind of sells Singapore short a bit is that it, it tells the colonialist story of Singapore, but it just replaces the British with the Chinese. Right. It's like Singapore was uninhabited. And then we came in here and we made it from a jungle into an urban paradise, which is the kind of story that the English would have told mm-hmm. about New York City. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like or, you know, it, it's uh, or or Boston. Right. Uh, if not New York, because the Dutch were here first. There are some Dutch. It didn't matter. Right. Yeah. So, so on that. Right. I mean, that, it's the question is, like, how do you define Asians? If this movie is called Crazy Rich Asians, yeah, um, it's obviously very much focused on uh, you know these straight Chinese people, ABCs, uh, mainland Chinese, uh, so on and so forth. And by extension to that, again, as I mentioned before, you know other East Asian cultures, particularly Korean Americans, of which I'm primarily interested in. But it completely then uh, just blots out, doesn't have any room to talk about South Asians, Southeast Asians, uh, Indian subcontinent, um, and and so on and so forth. So that's like uh, it, it, that's kind of a weakness of of um, how we talk about it in American English, um, uh, this, these notions of uh, ethnic identity and this broad, huge, unwieldy umbrella designation of Asians, right? Because, you know, uh, just while well, we're talking about crazy rich Asians, there are crazy poor Asians in the United States as well, right? Hmong, Vietnamese, uh, have much, much lower um, average incomes compared to Chinese Americans who have who are pretty high up there, but actually significantly lower than Indian Americans in the United States um, who have very high incomes. Um, so, um, I mean, this might be a good of a top opportunity as any other to start talking about class, um, the the rich part of crazy, uh, crazy rich part of crazy rich Asians as opposed to the Asian piece of it. Because as we've been, as we've said many times, Rachel is not poor. No, <laughs> she, she is a uh, at least tenure track <laughs> professor. She's a she's, a she's a professional poker player. <laughs> she's she's actually in real life she's played by phil helmuth but she's been in in a back in a in a um that's this is actually the real life story of poker pro phil helmuth but in order to to compensate for how many times hollywood whitewashed a story they decide to make him into a cosmopolitan beautiful and sophisticated asian woman which is just very different than his experience in real life <laughs> sorry this that's sort of funny if you like poker but if you don't like poker you probably have no idea who that is or understand why that is an absurd suggestion but yes no you're right she's not poor you're not. She's not poor. She's. So anyway, no, sorry. She, she and she is like you know in the United States or urban United States uh, context from which she comes. She's pretty uh, like uh, at least upper middle class, if not upper class, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, she runs presumably runs in sophisticated circles, has a much nicer apartment than the average New Yorker, um, is in a very enviable position, and um, to comedic effect. She is treated like a country bumpkin <laughs> when she yeah. shows up with these crazy rich Asians. And um, I, I, there's something presumably relatable about this, right? It's not, uh, again, this is a mass audience uh, piece of culture. And th- this might be associated with the fact that like people always kind of see themselves as a station above where they actually are. Or at the, yet, paradoxically, at the same time, always see themselves as the underdog and are conscious of the larger fish uh, yeah. that's, that's out there. Yeah, we're comfortable, right? Is what he says. Yeah, there, there you go. Right. Yeah. Every, everybody sees themselves as we're comfortable. Even Nick Young, who is yeah. uh, in literally the richest family in all of Singapore, right? And I will say, played by a Malaysian actor, movie doesn't really address it. I just know we're going to get well actually by that. Yes, the movie does represent Malaysian actors, but they never go into this culture or talk about yeah. his role. Now, but anyway, you're right. So, Matt, what does that make you think about in terms of like the class divide? in this movie how does that provoke you what is your kind of reaction well i just i'm i'm so surprised that that henry golding has never like been in a movie before like that that it's he's got something coming that like is like the rachel character in this the constance Wu character um where it's like oh she has no idea what he's in for like that guy is going to become an international movie star that guy is a movie star like you can't he's so like i I mean i want to hang out with him i want (laughs) (laughs) i want him on our podcast now you know Uh, forget Idris elba as the next james bond 
Henry Golding. Oh, yeah. right. You heard, you heard it here first. first. You heard it here first. Wow. That is the right move. That is the dominant strategy right now. <laughs> Game theory matrices are all aligning towards that outcome. Oh, yes, my God. Definitely. Yeah, get a Chinese co-producer and, and you'll you'll make the most successful movie of all time. Um yeah, it's uh well no it, it was just uh, I I didn't have a particular I didn't have a particular thing. I think that it's not you can't really fault a movie uh like this for not taking on um not taking on the sort of class realism, right? Like where where do all those food vendors in the 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 night market lay their head at night, you know? Or lay oh, their I'll head I'll tell you actually in, in uh quality public housing in Singapore because they plan it out that way. But go oh. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. They actually they devote a, a portion of their their budget there's like a you know t- taking care of the people who are citizens of the country as a fiscal priority they have rail they have rail travel that's what you're going to tell me that works yeah. right <laughs> they, they do you know what they don't have in singapore democracy uh, and oh. yet they have other things hmm okay sorry continue <laughs> so also how did all those women end up on that container ship in the middle of the ocean <laughs> so so one of the another interesting sort of cleavage here i think and that it relates to class in, in terms of speaking what I of connect- women on the container ship <laughs> up top. Actually, well, by the by the way, I was I was fairly pleased that it was mostly it was like a lot of uh, a lot of sort of lean male torsos on display, and that the the uh, the TNA seemed perfunctory, right? Which probably probably is more to do about with the the expected audience of a rom com like this than than anything else but you know yeah a lot of a lot of shower scenes like um astrid's husband first first uh or maybe i guess that's the only one but a lot of a lot of torsos you know uh that when he uh when he came home after after being a, a dirty unfaithful boy and had to shower off to get clean again yeah so so okay so i think it's unfair of even though it's what i want to do on watching the movie because it is so clearly about this immense wealth and you even have the shots right of the sort of barrier between the guys putting the fruits in the truck or taking the fruits off the truck and then eleanor walking into the mahjong parlor and there's this immense divide between the two of them the 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 guys in the turbans right who are in the jungle right who are like separate away from everybody it's in the movie like there there is clarity there these people exist and they're in the movie uh and even if they're not in the center of it very much on the fringes when i think about movies that are romantic comedies and romances in general often do this right like romance novels it's like the millionaire and his wife right it is not by any stretch of the imagination unique to asians that they have crazy rich romances right like 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 50 shades of gray is probably one of the more contemporary examples where i mean he's not a vampire but like he he started out as one in the early drafts i guess but no no just like the that there is tons of immense wealth on display in these sorts of stories in general and i kind of think i don't know i have a couple ideas of why this is the case and like why are, why do people fixate so much on victorian england for example or even like edwardian england or whatever whatever the particular sort of mid 1800s period uh we're talking about here where people are curtsying to each other and have to speak appropriately or they get in trouble like why is that such a huge place to locate romances even up to the point where like downton abbey is kind of showing the end the tail end and decay of that but there's like a fixation in western media with these like stories that take place in like mansions on the moor right rather than like you know in flats you know near where the defoe guy who wrote robinson crusoe lived right in the bad part of town right um is that uh part of it i wonder and i wonder if you guys have some ideas around this too I mean, part of it is you want to see the fancy lives of the fancy people. And let's not let's not pretend that you don't. Right. It's like you want to see the fancy outfits. You want to see the fancy uh, dining wear. And, you know, maybe a particular person has a particular taste for a particular sort of outfit or dining wear. Uh, it takes all kinds. And the most shocking thing about Crazy Rich Asians in this regard is that it was not made 15 years ago. Right. Which is because it very well might have been and it would have been fine. Right. Uh, although I guess the world wasn't ready, which is much to the world's detriment. But but also I would say that that these you have to find a moment in in history in sort of economic and social context wherein uh, gaffes in courtesy in individual conversations have material consequences. Right. Because I think like if I myself like 
I'm I'm spoiler alert. Neither 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 rich nor Asian potentially crazy. Right. Uh, if I were to go to like a family gathering and, and I were to have like a rough conversation with somebody and, and it went poorly. Right. Uh, and I had like a, uh, somebody I cared about, you know, say I brought my fiance and it went poorly. Um, I, I mean, I don't think it would like really substantially change like the entire course of my life. It would like make me feel bad. And then like the next time I see everybody, I would try to fix it. And but but stories like novels and grand romances can't really work that way. Like like crazy rich Asians can't take place over a five year period where sure she meets the mom and they talk and then it doesn't go well. And and they all have a lot of angst and they're sad and there's a lot of crying and like they go back later and they try again. And and part of the benefit of or the value of doing these stories about like obscenely wealthy people who have to make decisions about inheritance is it creates a sort of artificial reason why this conversation really matters uh, even it's, more than it hurting people's feelings. I don't know. Yeah, it's it stakes. Which yeah. you just described the stakes, right? Yeah. It's the reason why we have blockbuster action movies about the world ending as opposed to uh, quite workplace dramas about getting a project done on time and on budget. And if you don't, then like a supplier is going to get slightly upset. <laughs> so having a hundred million dollars is sort of like opening a portal over a major city. It's just something that speeds exactly. along the conclusion of the movie in a sort of succinct and, and efficient manner, while also ex- addressing and expanding a certain amount of uh, appropriate, appropriate scale and appropriate aplomb for the big splash that you're trying to make at the end. Um, I, let me, I don't know. Let me ask this question. Is this movie supposed to be satirize satirizing wealth and if so how much is it doing is it doing a good job of it and i'm going to ask this question by way of one particular scene in this movie and try to get your reaction from it um okay so this is the wedding scene right and this is uh already made out to be like a very extremely ostentatious wedding what do they say what it's 40 million dollars and uh as a good methodist you're only supposed to spend 20 million dollars <laughs> on a wedding amazing line amazing line um and as like to really take things over the top in this wedding, um, water starts to come down the aisle. And you're like, what on earth is going on? And then uh, all the people in the pews get these uh, fronds, like uh, palm fronds with lights on them. And then the bride comes and then like gingerly tiptoes through the water. Um, My uh, movie-going companions were divided on this because I laughed at this. I thought, this this (laughs) is ridiculous. Um, this is this is nuts, uh, and this is all being played intentionally for laughs. And the people I saw the movie with disagreed and said that no, this is meant to be like elegant and like just uh, kind of on the on the tasteful and extremely posh and desirable side of crazy rich, uh, rather than the uh, overtop disgusting and 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 uh, off the rails side of it. What did you guys like? Did the people in your movie theater laugh when they saw this, or did they like oh? I mean, Matt, what do you think? What do I think the people in my movie theater did? <laughs> I don't know. I think they, I think they bit, I think they bit down, I think they bit down on their popcorn and, and, you know, chewed it slowly. But the, um, I don't know. Like I, I remember sort of, uh, gasping at the kind of ostentatious nature of it. But I, I mean, I think where does the movie come down? I, my, argument would be staunchly pro right like that that this is not this movie that kind of relishes the all the the sumptuous delights that a lot of money can bring you and and not doesn't sort of criticize them as either you know um exclusionary or unwoke or uh you know i don't know overly materialistic or 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 anything like that, right? It's it's that's just not where its heart is. Yeah, I mean, I did lean into my fiance when the church showed up and say, "Hey, look, it's the church where Mario gets married in Super Mario Odyssey." But she didn't understand the joke; it was way too obscure. Maybe you'll appreciate it, some listener who plays Super Mario Odyssey appreciate it. I mean, I saw it as like a big statement of purpose that. The water and the fronds were a kind of manifest destiny kind of situation, right, where it was like the woman is Singapore slash Southeast Asia and all and everything that is here, all of the wealth, all of the bounty, all of the culture, all of the tradition. Right. And the idea that like filling the church with a rice patty is a way of uh, kind of uh, 
you know, it would be like driving a bunch of cattle through a cowboy wedding. Right. Or like where it's like it's it's it would be very silly, but not for the people who really believe that, like, they started from the bottom. Now they're here, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that that it's it's I don't know. It's at, 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 uh, in, in crazy rich Texans. They just pump crude oil down the aisle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and you are meant to believe this is nice. I wish I could do this. And it's. Well, can we talk? Should we? Is this is this the jumping a jumping off point to talk about Aquafina? Is that what we're talking about? Or uh, the uh, what, Mark? What do you think oh. about Aquafina? <laughs> um, I thought her performance was spectacular in this. Mm-hmm. Um, she, uh, you know, all the reviews said that she steals every scene that she's in, and that yes, indeed, turned out to be true. Um, or, uh, again, speaking of disorientation, and uh, again, pun intended, um, it, it it did have my head spinning a little bit, you know, because she is supposed to be you know, native to Singapore and then went to college in the States and then went back to Singapore. Um, but comes off so clearly as American and like this particular, like urban, uh, uh syncretic identity of American that uh, at times it was hard to believe her as being authentically Singaporean, um, because by, by speech and mannerism, she didn't quite fit in with the, with the rest of the crowd. Um, I'm not really complaining again though, because she was so entertaining, uh, to, to see and, and listen to. Yeah, I felt like her character is one of the examples where it was really apparent that the movie was being adapted from a book because there were things that were being elided. They were like details that were being hung on to from the book that they totally would have changed if they were just making the movie like, oh, she's my college roommate. It wasn't really like the movie made it seem like these people hang out all the time. And yet the she has almost no information about uh, Rachel's relationships. She doesn't like know who her boyfriend is. And also it's like, well, she's also my college roommate and I haven't seen her in a while. And and so there's no real beat where it's like, you know, hey, wow, life life sure gets crazy. Right. Like we sure have come a long way since college. It's just like these are people who have already had that moment. And the movie plays it like they are they are familiar immediately, which is probably for the best. Right. Because and it's the same thing that my best friend's wedding would have done. Right. Where it's like. You know, you you go right into the middle of the relationship. You don't start at the beginning uh, and you just have things hit the ground full and full steam. But you can tell that in the book, things happen over a different time frame. It's been compressed. Uh, and also, I think, yeah, that Aquafina being brought in to play this character. You can't imagine that the character if the character was actually described like this in the book, like, you know, she uses African-American vernacular speech sometimes. I just I find that to be unlikely, but maybe it's possible. I don't know. I haven't read the book. Um, I, I just think it's interesting uh, that that Aquafina, uh, well, like, like, and this this also brings it to the. I guess this also brings us to the cold play, right, Mark? Is that what this brings us to? Sure, is let's that, go there. Is that, like, is that like okay? So so here's the thing, right? Is that above and beyond all the stuff that happens on the internets and in real life about whether you're supposed to be sensitive about this or that thing. One of the things that really matters is like whether you're actually a jerk and whether you're actually hurting somebody's feelings or not. And context affects whether you're hurting people's feelings or not. And context affects whether you're being a jerk. And so uh, I think that Aquafina has something to do with this in the sense that I don't I don't particularly know whether she hurts people's feelings by speaking in that way. I suspect not. But uh, because of context, but I don't know. But what I will posit this to the group is that at the end of this movie is a big climactic playing of the song yellow by Coldplay in Chinese. And, uh, it is, it is, uh, both, it seems both entirely, it both seems staggeringly edgy and entirely harmless. And, (laughs) and I just wanted to float that out to everybody to be like, what's your reaction to this, this, uh, this song in this situation? Cause it's wild. It's absolutely wild that they pulled that off, that they actually played it. Yeah, I think it's intentionally. What did you say? Uh, staggeringly. Uh, say, say that one more time, Pete, because it was oh, so staggeringly angry. edgy, right? Uh-huh. And then, yeah. and, then uh, and then also and then harmless, right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. the edgy side of this, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> the song. The, the name of the song is Yellow, and um, which of course is uh, you know historically been used as a derogatory term to refer to people of East Asian descent, referring to their skin color. Although uh, no East Asian person I know um, looks like Homer Simpson. Uh, in skin tone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the song itself, the Coldplay song itself, doesn't have anything to do with East Asians or Asians, as far as I know, at least on the, on the surface. Um, but uh, bringing it in to this uh, and, and, and making it an edgy joke is just such an audacious, audacious move 
Um, and then also it's actually thematically relevant because <laughs> the lyrics of the song say uh, at some point it says, and and we were all yellow, <laughs> which is <laughs> like amazing because, yes, they are on one hand and they totally are all not on the other hand for all the reasons we just <laughs> described. Um, and so to to bring this into this into the into this context is audacious, uh, uh, bold. Absolutely. And then it's like uh, completely harmless in the sense that like um, if you're not aware of any of this context and also because a lot of those lyrics are now sung in Mandarin, it just becomes like this lilting, romantic, emotional underscore for the uh, like the most intense emotional pieces of of the movie at the at the very end. Um, I thought it was brilliant. I I loved every second that uh, I, I heard that song on there and I completely applaud every creative person who was in charge of that, including the people at Coldplay who had to be asked not once, but twice <laughs> to surrender the rights to allow, to allow the song to be used in this movie. Probably, probably wisely. Cause they, it's not like they haven't taken heat before. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, Matt, what do you think? I'm not a Coldplay fan. <laughs> Would you support a movie about robots in which fix you was played in a similar situation, <laughs> perhaps in binary and like sort of squeaky dits and dots, like Morse code. <laughs> Yeah, as long as they translated it into binary. Okay, okay, good. As long as it's in their the robot's own language. Yeah, then it would work. Okay. I mean, it's you know, I the the there there is this kind of reverse reversal, right? You talk about sort of Asian culture being um spe- kind of spreading out over the world, and then uh, kind of American rock and roll music being the the American pop music diaspora, which this film's soundtrack represents, right? With all the uh, all the cov- covers, some of them translated, some of them not. Uh, um, like uh, I can't help falling in love with you, and and um, and the Beatles, and the whole you know the 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 whole thing. It's a good. It was good. It had. I mean, it, it had energy. It gave it. It was a little on the nose sometimes, but it gave it good uh, uh, good energy and drive. Right. Well, yeah, me, I think so. Well, and and panache, right? Yeah, uh, de- definitely. Like done done with a great deal of uh, done with a great deal of style and uh, uh, a sense of you know uh, edginess is definitely a way to put it, um, and a sense of kind of like tweaking uh, tweaking sanctimony, which I which I always sort of appreciate, but a, but a kind of like winning cheekiness, I think, in uh, in the final analysis, right? Yeah, um, that's a good way to put it. Rather than rather than something that uh, uh, rather than something that's that's confrontational, um, it's a little more more gently alienating than that. Well, uh, gents, I think we should uh, hop back on our coach class flight back from from Singapore to the United States uh, and uh, finish our talk about uh, Crazy Rich Asians. But before we go, uh, we had a couple of comments on on the last. Um, on the last episode, the uh, Demolition Man episode of this, and uh, the first is a is a rebuke. I I am so you can always tell when when the comments. I'm I am uh, uh, I I am surprised that you missed X Y and Z. I'm surprised that you talked about the things you were interested in, not what occurs to me. Um, <laughs> no, that's that. This is actually not one of those. This is a uh, this is a good a good thing that fell through the cracks of our conversation. Pete uh, commenter Jesse writes amid the discussion of the prophetic nature of this film, Demolition Man. You missed the reference to Arnold Schwarzenegger's political career in the movie's timeline. Schwarzenegger becomes president, a feat that Mr. Spartan treats with some incredulity. Um, However, Schwarzenegger's rise to the high office was something that was seriously discussed in the not-so-distant past of our own timeline. Senator Hatch in 2003 proposed that an amendment, uh, proposed an amendment, it would have had to be a constitutional amendment, that would have permitted Mr. Schwarzenegger to run for president. Um, the most surprising thing about that to me is Orrin Hatch is, is still a thing. But Mark, it's, it, this is all by way of saying that we missed you on the the uh, the demolition man I know episode. I was still I was still in cryo freeze it was uh it was a, I had a bad rough time in there man yeah yeah there's more there's more Arnold stuff in the comment thread that you should go check out if you're interested in that sort of thing he Arnold Schwarzenegger was starting speeches with he was doing a bit at the time um when he would come out and say Thank you very much for changing the Constitution. I am very glad to accept the nomination for the President of the United States. Oh. Sorry, 
wrong speech. <laughs> like this really? was he was doing that. No, yeah. In in all seriousness, this is the thing that that uh, that he was doing during the time when he was governor of California, when he was the governor. Um, God, God bless California. Um, uh, commenter Margo writes in, my favorite part of the film that I remember is the way the folks of the future have their sex uh, wearing head, have sex wearing headsets, have sex. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry. I mistook the syntax of this uh, by misreading the punctuation. My favorite part of the film is the way the folks of the future have sex dash wearing headsets and listening to the love boat theme. What other TV theme songs are approved by the state? for lovemaking any ideas this is the, this is the question of the week it comes at the end of the podcast now in instead of this one first in the alphabet it's peter fenzel night rider <laughs> night rider i just night met her oh man no I, I was listening to a lot of them like like the young and the restless or the bold and the beautiful uh, although I think the one I really settled on was the, the listen, go listen to the theme song to the show Empty Nest, <laughs> uh, which is okay. kind of about, you're really going with the music with the, with the, like the musical quality of it and the kind of the cheesiness, uh, the cheese factor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think where is the intersection between the vibe? Cause, cause we're assuming, cause the one thing that the government in demolition man doesn't do is strip out the content from the references to brands, right? So like Sandra Bullock in Demolition Man, the government doesn't allow her to have a gun, but it allows her to have a Lethal Weapon 3 poster in her office. Mm. And so I think that there's this assumption that the sort of there that the sort of content has been hollowed out, that people don't really know what these things are really about or don't have the like full idea of what's going on in these shows and in these commercials. Like they don't really fully understand what commercials are uh, anymore and that they were for products like fully. And, but at the same time, there's nothing it's posited here that there's like nothing intrinsic about a commercial jingle or a TV theme song that would like lead you to extrapolate from it anything objectionable. And so I'm trying to think about TV theme songs that lie in that sort of intersection between the government doesn't want you to extrapolate anything objectionable from this. Right. We don't want you to, like, hear the song and then actually have subversive thoughts. Uh, but they do want it to set the mood. Right. Uh, and so, like, even the Little Mermaid songs would probably be too racy. But like, um, I don't know, the uh, the the theme from Knight Rider, you don't necessarily need to even know what the show is about. Yep. To like get the vibe going or Airwolf. Right. But these are all songs that like some teenage guy would have ready for that moment yeah. when he's going to actually meet a girl and then no girl's ever going to come over. Yeah, those are the night rider. That's awfully that's awfully triumphal. Mark, do you have a do you have a uh, do you have an answer here? Oh, just nothing but the obligatory. Mainly because they in in the future dystopia of of Demolition Man, they understand neither sex nor Seinfeld, and like the absurdist comedy of Seinfeld. It's just a it's just a a fun song for fun times. But the government cracks down on everyone who listens to those salads and scrambled eggs because that is over the line, over the line. Well. The world don't move to the beat of just, just one drum. <laughs> but not right for you. <laughs> not right so. It takes different strokes to have. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, Pete and Mark, for uh, podcasting about Crazy Rich Agents. Thanks very much to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.